the tiger crouched motionless in the grass. Perfectly disguised by the waving leaves, he observed his prey and waited for the perfect moment. Without warning, he pounced, claws extended, his massive, powerful frame bearing down on his hapless, unsuspecting victim who stood slim chance of living to see another day. The slim chance that he does have to live to see another day is provided for him by his sympathetic nervous system, more commonly known as the fight-or-flight response. In a split second, our soon-to-be victim has to instinctively decide whether his best option is to punch this tiger in the face or run the hell away, and his ability to make this decision determines whether he lives or dies. Now, this sympathetic nervous system serves us quite well in situations of life and death, where we need to make crucial decisions incredibly quickly. Fortunately, for most of us, our modern times don't present us with many tigers jumping out from behind park benches to attempt to maul us. Unless, of course, you count the kiddos who seem to keep their predator instinct alive and know right when to pounce on us when we least expect it. Unfortunately, however, our bodies actually respond with this same fight-or-flight system when we are in heated conversations with each other because of the perceived threat to our safety. So adrenaline actually pushes a lot of the blood away from our prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for our rational, logical decision-making ability, and it pumps it into our legs and arms to be used to either punch and kick or run away, which do not typically serve us very well most of the time when trying to communicate with other people. So in this episode, which is actually part one of a two-part series on crucial conversations, I will talk about exactly how we can handle conversations where there are differing opinions, there's high stakes, and there's heated emotions involved without resorting to punching or kicking, either verbally or physically, our way out of them. How does our definition of success shape how we live our daily lives? Join me, your host, Michael Bauman, as we create a life of success by exploring the cutting-edge research in happiness, motivation, psychology, philosophy, and more. Welcome to Thrive Culture Success Engineering. This episode is based on the book Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High by Carrie Patterson, whom, among others, have worked for over 40 years with hundreds of thousands of individuals, thousands of companies, to teach them how to effectively communicate with each other, especially in high-stakes situations. So the authors actually began their work by examining what makes some organizations succeed while others fail or simply be mediocre. Their initial hypothesis hinged on looking into the company's strategy, their structure, and the performance management systems as they reasoned that the company's success would have to hinge on these large organizational components. In a study that they performed on 500 exceptionally productive organizations revealed that peak performance had nothing to do with forms, procedures, and policies that drive performance management. In fact, half of all of the high-performing organizations had almost no formal performance management processes. The factor that they actually found that correlated most strongly with high performance was the ability of the employees and the overall company culture to handle and actually even encourage effective, crucial conversations. The path to high productivity and performance passes not through a static system, but through face-to-face conversations at all levels. 
And the best companies in almost any critical area are the ones that have developed skills for dealing effectively with conversations that relate to specific vital topics like safety, productivity, diversity, and quality. There's a quote in the book that succinctly sums this up that says, everyone argues about important issues, but not everyone splits up. It's how you argue that matters. So let's talk about what exactly is a crucial conversation. So a crucial conversation is one where there's differing opinions, there's high stakes, and then there's strong emotions that go along with it. And the law of crucial conversations is anytime that you actually find yourself stuck in life, there's a crucial conversation that you're either not holding or not holding well. So if you look at your life and analyze your life and look at the places you're stuck, there's probably a crucial conversation that you either need to have or you need to do better than what you're doing right now. Now, there's a seven-step process to becoming a master at these type of conversations. The first step is called start with a heart, or another way of putting it is lead with intention. The second step is learning to look. Third step is making it safe. Fourth one is master your stories. The fifth one is state your path. The sixth is explore others' paths. And the seventh is move to action. In this episode, we'll just talk about the first three. And then the the last four we'll actually talk about in the next episode. So at the core of every one of these crucial conversations that we end up having lies the free flow of relevant information. That's our goal. And this is actually the definition of dialogue. Dialogue is the free flow of meaning between two or more people. So they picture this as what they call the pool of shared meaning. This is the facts, the opinions, the experiences, and the feelings held by participants in a conversation that are understood and appreciated by all. And interestingly enough, this pool of shared meaning is actually a measure of the group's IQ. So the larger the share pooled is, the actual smarter the decisions that are made from the company or the team or the organization as a whole. So it's very, very important to create a safe place where people feel safe to be able to contribute to this pool of shared meaning. Now, what keeps us from being able to contribute to that pool, so so to speak, is what's called the silence and the violence continuum. Just like in our example of the tiger, we have a fight or flight response in our conversations. So when adrenaline is actually triggered by fear, it actually pushes all the blood away from the logical thinking part of our brain to our muscles for either fighting or running away. So this is why we have the silence aspect and the violence. And you'll see this in your conversations. Different people have different styles under stress. They either withdraw from the conversation and go to silence, or they try to force their meaning into the conversation or into this pool through violence. And this is, you know, things like sarcasm or, you know, outburst and things like that. And so what we end up falling into is what's called the fool's choice. We think in our mind that the only option to choose is we either go to silence and we just say, hey, everything's okay, or we respond out of violence or push our thoughts and opinions into this pool. And so we assume we either have to share an honest opinion, very forcefully a lot of times, or be respectful. And the bottom line really is this, if you don't talk it out, you will act it out. And this is what Joseph Grenny, one of the researchers for this book, talks about. Now, the individuals who are the best at holding crucial conversations believe that dialogue, 
no matter what the circumstances, is always an option. They always look for dialogue as an option. And those are the people that do it the absolute best. Now that we understand the mechanics of a crucial conversation, we get to start with the only area that we can really control, and that ultimately is ourselves. So that first step in the process is start with heart or lead with intention. In the book, they talk about how while we are acutely aware of how others contribute to unhealthy conversations, we are often unaware of the ways in which we are also contributing to the problem. So the problem in this area is the first thing that deteriorates during the crucial conversation is not actually our behavior. That that's comes second. Our motive is the first thing that deteriorates. We lose our intention that we started the conversation for. And the solution to this is learning how to stay focused on what we really want, even in the face of high emotions. Chris Argyris, a noted behavioral psychologist, came up with the idea that people place their thoughts and feelings in one of two places during conversation. You have the left-hand column and the right-hand column. The right-hand column is what we actually say in the conversation. The left-hand column is what we think and feel during the conversation, but we don't actually say. So I want you to think back to an emotionally charged conversation that you may have recently had. How did your unspoken motives, that left-hand column, how did that affect the conversation? And so if you don't first change your heart and your intention going into a conversation, any efforts to change your actions, they're likely to be insecure, shallow, and ultimately doomed to failure. And the quote from Ira Gasson says, be careful of your thoughts. They may become words at any moment. So how do we go about changing our approach to this crucial conversation? Well, it really begins with focus. We want to focus on what we really want. So to do this, you actually have to step back and look at the conversation like an outside observer. So if someone were watching your conversation, they're observing your conversation, what would they think that you really wanted based on your behavior? When you ask yourself this question, it actually kickstarts the brain into activating your cognitive processes again and moving the blood away from the extremities, you know, that kick and punch part to the brain who can hopefully make more rational decision. There are four power questions that really help us refocus on what we really want. The first question is, what am I behaving like I want? You might actually start to see that you might be behaving like you want to win the argument or to stay safe, or to take revenge, as opposed to actually the intention that you went into the conversation for. The second question, you ask, what results would I want for myself from this conversation? What results would I want for others from this conversation? What results would I want for the relationship as a whole? And what results would I want for the organization? Then you ask yourself what you don't want to have happen. So for instance, you may not want to damage the relationship or lose your job or to have nothing change or to not be heard. And then what you do is you combine the results that you want, both for yourself and for others and the organization, with what you don't want and you reframe it together. So for example, you ask yourself, how can I talk to my boss about feeling overworked and still keep my job? So what do you want and what don't you want? And you you ask your brain that question, and this allows you to refocus on your intention or your heart. And then the last question that you ask is, how would I behave if I really wanted these results? If I really wanted to keep my job and talk to my boss about how, how I'm feeling overworked, how would I behave? 
Well, I wouldn't lose my cool. I would be very, very respectful, but I would still want to express what I'm feeling. And this allows you, keeping this intention allows you to remain calm and focused on what you need to be focused even when emotions start to run hot. So identifying your motives before you go into a conversation and keeping the focus on behaving as if those intentions are what you really want during the heat of conversation is what separates excellent conversations from potential disasters. Now, the second step is learning to look, and this is very, very important. So Al Switzler, one of the researchers, says we go to silence because we dread crucial conversations. We go to violence because we are unskilled at holding crucial conversations. So the problem is when a conversation turns crucial, we actually miss or misinterpret the early warning signs that it's turning into a crucial conversation. And the solution is the sooner we are able to notice that we're no longer in dialogue, the quicker that we can get back to dialogue and minimize the relational cost of that. And there's two skills to do this. First skill, noticing when the conversation turns crucial. So again, that's differing opinions, there's high stakes, and the emotions start to heat up. So it's noticing in your body the physical signs, that's the tension, the tightness, the emotional signs, both for yourself and the other person. So you start to notice whether you're going to silence or violence or the other person's going to silence or violence. And even your behavior, you know, crossing your arms, not looking at the other person, those are all signs that somebody is going to silence or violence. So you want to look for those signs in yourself and others. And then we recode silence and violence as signs that people are not safe, as opposed to getting defensive or forcing our opinions on them. So what most often happens is when we see somebody start to get mad or they start to lash out, then we immediately become defensive. We put up our walls and we potentially start lashing out at them. Or if they start withdrawing from the conversation, we might get angry and try to force the meaning into the conversation. But if we can recode in our brain that anytime we notice those cues, it triggers in our brain that it's a crucial conversation and it's a sign that this conversation is not safe and that we actually need to restore safety. That would be an incredibly powerful thing to do. And again, you could use a tiny habits trigger when you notice that. You know, after you notice the emotions getting hot, then you will remember that we need to make this conversation safe. And so silence is any action that's taken to withhold information from the shared pool of meaning. It usually comes out in three ways. Masking, which has to do with, you know, sarcasm or sugarcoating. We have avoiding, so you change the subject. And withdrawing. And that could be withdrawing from the conversation or even physically. Those are all signs that we're going to silence. Then violence is any action taken to compel others towards your point of view. So you're almost forcefully, you know, controlling, which is the first one to your point of view. The second one is labeling. So you start actually labeling the other person. And the third one's attacking. So you start attacking the other person. And we all have certain styles under stress. So a very important thing that you can start doing is actually notice whether you tend to go towards silence or violence in crucial conversations. And this might actually differ by situation or by person. You know, so you might act differently at work than you do at home or when you're talking to your boss or your spouse. So begin to be aware and notice what do you do when the conversation turns crucial? Do you typically go to silence or typically go to violence? Being more aware of how you respond actually helps you begin to look for this in your conversations and then catch it and stop it early on. 
So Arthur Dobrin says there's always a way to be honest without being brutal. And this leads us into that third aspect, which is make it safe. So the limiting factor of all communication is not actually the riskiness of the message you want to share, but how safe you can help others feel hearing that message. And this is what Carrie Patterson, the author of the book, says. So the problem with making it safe is people either go to silence or violence because they feel unsafe sharing their meaning and their thoughts. The solution to this is when you notice they're going to silence or violence, actually step out of the content of the conversation, restore the safety of the conversation, and then step back into the content to continue discussing what you're talking about. So people rarely become defensive about what you are saying, the content, but because of why they think you are saying it. And no passion so effectively robs the mind of all of its power of acting and reasoning as fear, says Edmund Burke. So there are two necessary components of safety. The first one is mutual respect. So others have to believe that you care about them as a person and vice versa. In order for it to work, these are absolutely necessary components. And the second one is mutual purpose. Others have to believe that you care about their goals and vice versa. So essentially, it's like a fighter jet that's about to be shot down by a missile. They're going to dive, they're going to roll, they're going to spin. They send out a bunch of chaff, all to hopefully prevent that missile from reaching its target, to try to keep themselves safe. And you'll notice this in conversation as well. If mutual purpose or mutual respect gets lost, people start to send out a bunch of chaff or arguments and debates to try to actually protect themselves from getting hurt. So it's at this point that you need to recognize that safety's been lost, step out of the content of the conversation, restore that safety by either restoring mutual purpose and or respect, then you step back into the content and resume a healthy dialogue. And so this is how we go about doing this. First, you know, when we talk about mutual respect, this is what allows any conversation to continue. When respect is violated, dialogue immediately stops. People either move to silence or violence. And the warning signs that respect has been lost, what you want to look for is when people shift from the original intention of the conversation to actually defending their dignity. All of a sudden, that's a cue that that mutual respect has been lost. And so respect is like air. You don't really notice it until it's not there. And then it's all that you notice. So what about if you don't respect the other person? And this is actually a really good question. So if you don't respect the other person, you need to actually raise it up to a higher macro level. So you raise it up to essentially the shared humanity of that person. And just from that simple aspect that you share humanity, that alone should demand that they be treated with dignity. Again, you can't control their actions and their behaviors, but you can control yours. So this is how we go about rebuilding safety. The first thing is apologize when appropriate. So if you've made a mistake that has hurt somebody else, obviously apologizing goes a long way to restore mutual purpose and mutual respect. But don't apologize if you haven't made a mistake. We're not just apologizing just because. You're apologizing if you've made a mistake that has hurt somebody else. Then the second step is to use contrasting to actually address any misunderstanding that they have in the conversation. And this is a don't slash do statement. So this addresses others' concerns that you don't respect them or you don't have mutual purpose. And then it reconfirms your respect for them and then clarifies your purpose. So for example, the don't part would be, 
The last thing I want to do is communicate that I don't value your work or hurt your feelings. And the do part would be, I do want to communicate that I really appreciate what you have been doing and to talk about some potential concerns that I might have about punctuality. So you don't want to water down your message or what you do want to communicate. You actually use the don't part of this contrasting to reestablish the safety, help you know clarify any misunderstanding, and then you then that allows you to better communicate your concerns and your feelings. And you only want to use contrasting if you believe your intentions have been misunderstood. If there is no misunderstanding, then there's no need to contrast. So when to use contrasting? You can use it in the moment if the other person starts to become defensive. And again, if you notice that they start defending their dignity, you, you know that that's a misunderstanding and you can clarify, hey, that's not my intention and this is what my intention is. Or if you know that there's going to be a high stakes situation, a high stakes conversation that you're going to have, you can actually use this tool up front if you believe there's a high likelihood the other person will misunderstand your intentions. So up front, you can say, hey, I wanted to talk to you about this. I my last The last thing I want to do is to hurt your feelings or, you know, to have you misunderstand what I'm trying to say. So I really wanted to clarify, you know, hey, I appreciate what you're doing. You know, I appreciate all these things that you've been doing, but I did want to talk to you about whatever concerns you might have. Now, the second thing is how to restore mutual purpose. The question you ask yourself in this case is, does the other person believe that I care about their goals in the conversation? So to succeed in crucial conversations, we must genuinely care about the interests of other people, not just our own. The dialogue cannot begin unless mutual purpose exists. Mutual purpose is the entrance condition of dialogue, so it can't have dialogue unless there's mutual purpose. And without mutual purpose, people withhold meaning, and it's the foundation of any trust that's built. So the warning sign that triggers you to know that mutual purpose has potentially been lost is if the conversation starts turning to a debate. If you're going around in circles, you know that potentially mutual purpose has been lost. So the problem is, if we find ourselves at cross purposes, then our automatic reaction is to either give in or to dig in. And these are exactly the wrong responses. The solution to this is, again, learning to step out of the content. We recreate the mutual purpose. We resolve any conflict. And then we return to the healthy dialogue. And so there's four steps to doing this. And you can remember this with the acronym CRIB. So you think of a baby being safe in its crib. You know, you have that mutual purpose. Number one, you commit to finding a mutual purpose. So you point out, hey, I feel like we're coming at this from two different sides. Let's see if we can come up with something where we both agree or we have common goals and common objectives. So you commit to search for that goal that will benefit both of you. Now, the second thing is recognize the purpose or the why behind the strategy. So realize there's a difference between their why and potentially the strategy that they're using to get there. Ask the other person why they actually want what they're talking about. And this allows you both to get the meaning behind the why, essentially, into this pool of shared meaning. So some ways to do this are you could say, you know, help me understand where you're coming from. Or what are you trying to achieve with this? Or why do you want, you know, X, Y, and Z? Those are great ways to get at the why behind the strategy that they're talking about. And then you use this to invent a mutual purpose that both of you can agree on. So see if you can combine these together. So if it isn't obvious, you actually have to look for a higher level or a longer term purpose. So for example, it could be something like, if we can get the project finished on time and within the existing budget, we'll both be satisfied, right? 
So you use maybe your criteria, which is the project being finished on time, and their criteria, which is within their, their budget, and then they'll both be satisfied. So what this has done is, again, you stepped out of the content, you recreated a mutual purpose, you built the safety, and now the last step is you brainstorm new new strategies. So you come up with different ideas that how you can meet both of those conditions. So you're working at it together. So in this episode, we talked about first, what makes a conversation crucial? So again, we have differing opinions, there's high stakes, and there's high emotions. Then we talked about the first three steps in this crucial conversation process of starting with your heart and leading with intention. So going into the conversation with the intention that you have and not allowing emotions to shake you from that. Learning to look and making it safe. And if you forget everything else from this podcast episode, the most important things to remember when you're in the midst of a crucial conversation is to learn to notice and be aware if either you or the other person start moving towards silence or violence. Then try to restore that safety by stepping out of the content of the conversation, apologizing if necessary, express what you don't want, or what you are not trying to do, and then after restoring that safety, then try to enter back into the content again. So in the next step, the Crucial Conversations Part 2, I will teach you how to stay in the dialogue when you feel scared or angry or hurt and still be able to express your thoughts and feelings into the conversation. And again, like I've been mentioning for a couple weeks, be, be on the lookout for the website that will be coming up soon, www.thriveculturesuccess.com. Been doing a lot of work on it and really excited to launch that here in the next couple of weeks. I hope to see you back for another episode of Thrive Culture Success Engineering with your host, Michael Bauman. If you enjoyed this show, it would mean a lot to me if you left a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help people find the show. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.